our voices, our choices. The Gender Politics Podcast of the Heinrich Böll Foundation. My pronouns are Echa, so feminine singular, and also Eche, which is gender neutral. I want to set an example of a non-binary perspective. My pronouns are he, him, his, so er, in, him. And I use the pronoun she and identify myself as I'm not into pronouns because there are many languages in which the he-she doesn't exist and the they is something that's not translatable outside. It's a very Anglosphere kind of imposition. And so I do not go by pronouns because if we start going into pronouns beyond the female-male, I think the human-non-human should become into the equation too and we should have pronouns that locate us not only across genders but across species too. When French-Brazilian scholar and activist Manuela Peek argues that the pronouns he or she, them and they are exclusionary and inaccurate, she shakes up a central narrative of our time. Very many people around the world mistakenly assume two categories when looking at gender, man and woman. So every time we're talking about sexuality, we run the risk of anachronism, right? Because the words we have to understand sexuality, uh, male, female, LGBTQ, heterosexual, homosexual, all of these categories are current inventions, right? Homosexuality was invented about 100 years ago. As a consequence, that we had to invent the heterosexual, right? Since you invent the disease, you have to invent the norm, the non-sick. <laughs> and so when we think about a couple of centuries ago, of not only temporalities away, but spaces away, languages away, these categories don't necessarily fit. So for instance, in, in old Zapotec, you don't have he, she, Right? The so-called genders or pronouns are human, non-human, or animal, and inanimate beings, right? So you can be a mountain, you can be an animal, um, and you can be a human. The, the genders do not exist as categories, and so those are categories we have invented to organize the world we inhabit. But there are many worlds that are not inhabited and organized along those lines. So it's difficult to transpose. One of the things that I bring to, to the forefront in the research I do is that to study sexualities in other contexts brings the issue of translatability and the incommensurability or the untranslatability of other societies because it's about the political fabric that certain concepts and words bring into existence or force into existence, right? So... When we talk in genders, we're forcing genders into existence and we're imposing that reality upon the world. And that's why I, in part, refuse to use pronouns. But even in the present, if you think Persian language or Quechua language, they don't have pronouns, right? I have a friend who's a scholar who would identify as a they, except in her language in Persian, you do not have the he-she. And so it's already a forceful thing to identify as a she or a he. And the they is one more in position that makes sense in the Anglosphere, but not beyond in other languages, right? So we always have to be aware that 
all these gender references are context-specific, culture-specific, and time-specific. The binary narrative of two genders is bound together with the heterosexual practice that men are to love women and women are to love men. This is also part of the cis heteronormative and dominant narrative. Cis refers to identifying with the gender assigned to a person at birth. Those who are defined as a woman at birth self-identify as such and love men or cis-hetero. For many people around the world, breaking out of these categories means a struggle, even of life and death. Transgender people who, in the course of their lives, want to identify and be identified with a gender other than the one assigned to them at birth, have to endure partly inhumane, humiliating procedures, as in Germany, and are even persecuted and murdered, as in Chechnya and in many other countries. In this Heinrich Böll Foundation podcast series, my colleagues Vanessa Löwel and Emily Tomey spoke to activists, politicians, and scholars who are working to break down this violent, binary, heteronormative narrative. These people want to make space for more inclusive categories and ultimately corresponding laws that protect all people and allow them to live with dignity no matter where they happen to live, whether in Thailand, Uganda, Germany, or Argentina. In this first episode, we take a closer look at how and where the binary narrative operates, where it comes from, and the conflicts it brings to many people's everyday lives. Then, in the second episode, we take a look at transgendering within this dominant narrative. And in the third episode, we'll take a look at intergenderism. People are referred to as intersex or intergender, whose gender characteristics at birth read as neither distinctly male nor distinctly female. A first insight when we talk about gender and sexuality is that it's not about sex. As Manuela Peek says, Sex is never about sex. I guess that's one of the main things that I understood, right? If we look at the Tikuna, uh, it's the largest indigenous group in the Amazon. They live on the border between Brazil, Peru, and Colombia. In Tikuna lifeways, society is organized along the clan of nations. It's an exogamous system in which to marry well is to marry outside the clan, right? Not to poison the earth. <laughs> it's forbidden to marry within the clan. So the jaguar clan can marry with the parrot clan, but they cannot marry within the clan. And gender was never an issue. Uh, when Christianity arrived... Uh, they started imposing that, right? So marriage was not even about sex. It was about the clan and and the organization uh, across clans and solidarity and exchanges. And it was political. And now it's political with Christianity in a different way. But sexuality is never about sex. Pleasure is not about sex. Pleasure comes from a diversity of things, right? Sex being one of them. But again, the way we understand sex, pleasure, and genders is specific to the context we inhabit today. And I think the context we inhabit everywhere now is an expansion of European society, which means Christian values organized by the church, by monotheist religions, and in which gender hierarchies and the control of reproduction because of the control of property 
because of control over territory and borders, is very much um, straight jacket, <laughs> disciplined, right? And so sexuality and pleasure have become central tenets of the colonial project and of European Eurocentric forms of governance. So from that starting point, I think every time we're talking about pleasure or sex, we're talking about something else. And that's what's important to go back to the roots. The binary narrative, which Manuela Peak characterizes as a Christian European colonial project, is as self-evident as it is consequential. And above all, it works subconsciously. Every day, people all over the world classify themselves within the binary narrative or are classified by others. Whether in conversations which employ the pronouns already mentioned, through forms filled out in governmental agencies or at the doctor's office, or going to a public toilet, in so many cases, one is forced to decide between the two poles. Sabina Haack teaches at the Technical University of Berlin in the Center for Interdisciplinary Women's and Gender Studies. Many years ago, a student once said to me in class, well, but there are simply men and women, what more is there to think about? That actually sums up very well what gender research means when it talks about the naturalization of gender. The idea that gender is given by nature, that we already bring our gender with us when we are born, something which modern medicine suggests to us. It is very difficult for expectant parents to refuse this information. Regarding what sex their future child will have, you really have to make a great effort when dealing with a gynecologist if you don't want to know. We can follow that quite well, that this binary kind of distinction dates back to the late 18th and early 19th century. It has to do with the rise of the natural sciences, human anthropology and, of course, medicine. Feminist historiography has been able to reconstruct that very clearly. There is an important study by Claudia Honegger from the early 1990s on the order of the sexes with the subtitle The Sciences of the Human and the Woman, which sums it up quite well, as Honegger can show here how the emancipation efforts of women in the context of the French Revolution, that is, in the context of the bourgeois revolution, increasingly in the first half of the 19th century are pushed back and hemmed in by the natural sciences, in the sense of, okay, women may also demand the right to vote and equal rights and occupations, etc. However, we as anatomists, we as physicians, we as human anthropologists tell you, women are not able to do that at all, because they are constitutionally weaker, because they are not reason-based beings, but feeling-based beings, etc., the sciences play a role here, so to speak, in the containment of political interests and emancipation efforts of women, but also in socially enforcing this two-gender model that's justified by anatomy. Everything feminine was and is devalued and suppressed, first through Christian colonialization, then through scientific justifications, often enough with naturalizing, biologizing arguments. While white cis-hetero women are devalued but still exist, the same is not true for anyone beyond the white binary narrative, according to Alba Reda. She's undersecretary for diversity policy at the Ministry of Women's Affairs in Argentina and a trans activist. And here I would like to quote the philosopher Michel Foucault. He talks about how these power relations circulate in our society and that it's not only about difference, but also about the erasure of our voices. 
Why do we find ourselves in a scheme where there is so much emphasis on heterosexual hegemony? All of our institutions, all of our knowledge, everything is flooded with the binary narrative and we are rendered voiceless with it. We are silenced and our identities are negated. We are criminalized and pathologized. This is not to say that there are no cracks, but global hegemony is based on the division of the sexes, also economically, with respect to the division of labor, for example. That's also why caregiving tasks that women take on are so invisible. Misogyny and discrimination against women have the same patriarchal root. Only when we understand the structure can we find an answer to it, how it follows the logic of the market, how institutions are built on it, and reproduce much of the inequality over and over again. So, in order to enforce the binary narrative, it is claimed on the one hand that the division into male and female, as well as heterosexual practice, is predetermined by nature and biologically fixed from birth to death. And on the other hand, any person who does not fit into the scheme is pathologized and criminalized. Homophobia, just like transphobia, misogyny, and racism, have their origin in the same rejection of everything that does not fit the norm. This norm has been cemented and exported in all spheres of life over millennia. The idea of the white, cis-heterosexual male. He continues to sit in the most powerful positions, leading states, institutions, and companies. Medicine, most sciences, and laws are oriented around him. In the workplace, not only is he usually paid much better, he also works much less on average, because most of the world's unpaid work is done by non-male people. Non-white people also have a harder time than white-red people because they face multiple forms of discrimination. So-called hegemonic masculinity is enforced with state, economic, and cultural violence. You are the rapist, shout thousands of protesters in all the countries of Latin America. Our punishment is the violence you don't see, they chant. Chanting with their eyes closed and joined in large dancing formations, they say, the patriarchy is the judge who condemns us because we were born. Other common symbols of female resistance include the hashtag and protest chant, ni una minus, not one less. Beginning in Argentina in 2015, the Ni Uno Minos movement has now spread to more than 50 countries, gathering many hundreds of thousands of people with colorful flags and scarves on International Women's Day in Argentina alone. Green stands for the right to abortion, and more generally, for a new feminist awakening in Latin America. Purple stands for stopping violence, and orange for a separation of church and state. The growing resistance is directed against a system that has shaped countries and cultures for centuries, as Albo Reda explains. Above all, this has to do with the expansion of capitalism, which is seeking new sources, new markets, and how it has come to Argentina. Spain and Portugal are overwhelming native peoples, erasing original customs and traditions here in Latin America. Colonialism and its consequences are among the pivotal points for understanding the situation today. 
So the state structure of Latin American states are mainly structures based on European and North American models, with the whole legal system and such. What does it mean to be Argentinian? This is precisely the question of the essence of our political structure. We are shaped by uprooting, displacement and migration. We are not Europe, but we still long to be Europe. We are not indigenous, because we have wiped out the indigenous, but we are this mixture that almost defiantly belongs to these lands and anchors itself here. The domination of what it means to be Argentine is a result of sexualized violence against women, against indigenous people. With the colonialization of the world, European patriarchal structures were exported. Today, the supposedly enlightened progressive voices in the global north, oblivious to history, devalue the global south as regressive. Manuela Peak calls this view of formerly colonized states the devaluation of the periphery. First racism, as well as homophobia, transphobia, intersexphobia, and misogyny were exported. Now they serve as another strategy, to maintain power according to a Eurocentric ideology of domination. The invention of homophobia is a Western invent that was exported through colonial empires. So the British has the famous article 377, that's the same in India, in Uganda, in South Africa, in the Caribbean, right? The Portuguese, the Spaniards, the French, they exported homophobia as a way to control colonized populations, right? Dominated populations. So there are different moments across empires in which sexual codes of conduct are used for different purposes. But it's very interesting to see, for instance, how the French decriminalize homosexuality with the French Revolution. And just after the French Revolution, they criminalize homosexuality in Haiti because of the Haitian Revolution, right? As a way to control and criminalize populations. All of the codes on criminality for sexual practices and pleasures and right, whether it's sodomy, homosexuality, which was not framed as is, was more framed as sodomy for a long time, crimes against nature, right? All of these various codes, they're all very vague. And that's kind of like the rules we have now on terrorism. They're very vague because they can be used against anybody who is not complying, obeying, or um, aligning with the state, with the colonial project in those cases, right? So you actually have this double movement while we're in, in Europe, you have a progressive decriminalization of sexual practices and a recriminalization of these same practices across colonial empires. But let's keep in mind, in the 1400s, you have cases in Holland, of women being burned for crimes of sodomy, for having have sex with Muslim men, right? So this notion of crimes against nature and sodomy varies across time space. It's up to the state to decide what is criminal, where, when, by whom, right? And who dies from that crime and who can be redeemed from that crime. With the fall of the Ottoman Empire, according to Manuela Peek, Nation-states are the only political model in the world, according to which nationalities, border controls, or even identities are structured and organized along binary gender lines. 
time is an important factor in the pejorative view of supposedly retrograde cultures. In the Western view, it is used as a category for the narrative of progressiveness and development. Yeah, um, so indigenous peoples are always in the past, right? As uh, John Locke's second treatise of government says, in the beginning, all the world was America. And it's this notion that indigeneity is what exists before modernity, right? The, the savages are outside of the political, they're pre-political, they're apolitical, nature is apolitical, and political modernity is government, right? Uh, so there is this constant use of temporal difference to separate Europeans from non-Europeans. And sexuality is one of these markers of temporality. So indigenous peoples are also all sodomites. This is a claim that you see across colonial chronicles, right? In which they say they're all ruinous, they're all sodomites. They practice sodomy and there are many massacres and attacks in the name of fighting sodomy. And if we go back into history, the history of the word sodomy is really interesting, right? It didn't always exist and it has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. But it really starts with the Summa Theologica of Thomas Daquinas in the 13th century, 14th century. That's really when the word emerges and it, and it starts spreading in the Christian context as really the morale of the Catholic Church. And at the beginning, this word really means disobedience to God. Right? So the disobedience to God are those who disobe- disobey God, who disobey authority, who disobey monotheism and the modern states. And who disobey the Muslims, the savages, the indigenous, those who are outside of Christian time space. And so there is this location of non-Europeans into the past time and again, which is done through this use of the word sodomites. That's why we have women being burned for the crime of sodomy for having sex with Muslims in 14th century Europe. Uh, And that's why in the process of colonizing the Americas, there is this constant invocation of sodomy and sodomites. They're all sodomites because they don't observe God. They don't obey God because they're not modern. They're not European. They're not Christians. And let's remember that the doctrine of Christian discovery is about the conquering of territories held by the infidels, territories that are not under Christian domain that have to be brought under Christian domain by any means necessary, right? Those are the papal bulls of the 10th century uh, in the case of the Crusades in Palestine, then in 1493 for the Americas to justify the takeover. So the takeover of the Americas is very similar to the Crusades, right? A takeover against the infidels. And you have to justify that these populations are infidels, except they're not Muslim, right? So you have a different narrative. They become indigenous. But indigenous peoples and Muslims are all located outside Christian modernity and into the past. And in that analysis, you can see how sodomy, uh, homosexuality, and terrorism are all in this very similar space of bestiality, right? Non-human non-Christian, to be fixed, to be converted, or to be eradicated, right? To bring peace and modernity and democracy to the world. 
Another important means of upholding the European narrative is law. Laws structure what is understood as the rule of law in a democracy. Here, Argentinian law is often cited as exemplary with regard to LGBTIQ plus rights. In Argentina, same-sex marriage was already introduced in 2010, while in Germany, it took until 2017. In 2013, an Argentinian child was able to change his or her gender identity for the first time. The first time anywhere in the world that this was possible. But there is still so much to do, says Alba Reida. As Undersecretary for Diversity Policy at Argentina's newly established Ministry of Women, Gender and Diversity, she is the first trans activist to hold such a high office in Argentina. We don't just talk about trans in Argentina, we also use the term transvestite as a conscious reappropriation of this term that is often used pejoratively, a term that has often been used to exert violence, to devalue, to pathologize, to criminalize. And the trans movement in Argentina has reclaimed this violent term to say, this is who we are, this is our community, and with this we show that we belong to the society, that here is our space to stay. Many trans people lived and died in secrecy, without the option to express their sexuality which also means that they weren't able to leave a trace in history. This is why the history of travestismo in Argentina does not appear in the history of politics, of states, of, let's say, the grand history. What is passed on is often oral. We find other traces in official documents of the state, police regulations and repressive rules against transvestites and trans people, as well as against lesbians and gays. And various social, cultural expressions of our identity can be found occupying public spaces, pluralistic spaces, such as the carnival. Carnival is part of our identity. For a few days each year, we celebrate in the provinces of Buenos Aires. It's really part of the reality of our lives. For a few days, transvestites show up and are the stars. A carnival without transvestites is not a carnival. For a few days, the transvestites are applauded, but only for that short time. After that, the violence returns, even a lot of institutionalized violence. After that, the violence returns, even a lot of institutionalized violence. Because our state, seen strictly from the legal side, is a state of oppression. Now that things have changed, transvestites as political actors are really something new. La participación como sujeto político de las travestis Feminist resistance in Argentina has succeeded in making LGBTIQ plus people less criminalized and pathologized. Changing the law is a central building block towards bringing about fundamental changes. Often enough, existing functioning structures are and have been destroyed with exactly this means of jurisdiction, as Manuela Peak reports. So one of the ways to colonize sexuality was the law was probably the main tool of colonization. Vinnie Deloria, a native scholar, talks about conquest masqueraded as law, right? Legal rules, norms, codes, was one of the main tools to impose European dominance over colonized bodies and territories. And one was crimes against nature and the crime of sodomy, which was very vague and you could put people in jail or death sentence, right, kill them for having sexual practices that were judged as crimes against nature. 
But others were a little more sophisticated, right? So, for instance, in Brazil in 1750s, the government creates the Directory of Indians uh, to control the domesticity. And this was an example of uh, compulsory heterosexuality in which indigenous homes that had multiple families living, right? So uh, to impose the nuclear family, you criminalize these extended families, which existed everywhere in the world. So in, in the Andes, you had the Ayu. In North America, the Cree had the Oyate, I believe. And you criminalized that by state bureaucracy that imposed the nuclear family. And wherever you have extended families living together, several families, they were described as beasts, not following the laws of honesty and having multiple sexes together and generations, and that was forbidden. If you fast forward to the present, you can see a similar process with the boarding schools in North America and Canada and the U.S., in which indigenous peoples who are not following the rules of honesty have their children kidnapped and shipped to boarding school, right? And it's a way to separate families. And by separating extensive families, you're not only separating humans and the possibility of transmitting language, knowledge, memory, all of that, but you're breaking apart the um, structures of accountability and reliability, right? So forms of governing, right? The Ayu in the Andes was the first political unity and there were extended families. And that's where you are accountable. That's where you're held accountable, right? And that's where you find welfare. So you destroy that. So you create vulnerability and dependency upon state structure. So it's also a way to destroy any competing forms of sovereignty. So the Hawaiians explain how it was crucial in criminalizing the extended Hawaiian families to separate forms of support and accountability and social reproduction in order to have the United States government as the only form of authority remaining. The model of the heterosexual nuclear family, mother, father, child, is accompanied by the fact that the mother is idealized as the provider and nurturer who is bound to household care and education. The father, however, claims the public, economic, and political space. So you have what um, Rifkin calls hetero homemaking, right? In which the home becomes, the family becomes nuclear. It's a reproductive space and the division of labor is gendered, right? And this is something that really becomes established with the colonial project. So monogamy, female domesticity, and the creation of the free labor, right? Because women are providing free labor, raising children, and some feminist economists talk about women subsidizing the state because they create workers, workforce for free, right? That can, at 18, enter the labor force and fuel the capitalist economy. For people like Alba, this is compounded by the fact that they had no family support, nor were they protected by the state. Even the human rights organizations did not embrace trans people at first. All people over 40, like me, grew up with this rejection, mostly rejected by our families. Generally speaking, it's a lot of social violence. Insults, stereotypes, teachers kicking us out of classes, telling us, this is not how you behave, this is the scandal. They insult you for your behavior. School is just one example. 
We also experience a lot of violence and repression from the state. These are the characteristics that not only shape our lives, our subjectivity, but also a historical period in which the state systematically denied our most basic rights. Since then, it's really been a great achievement of the LGBT movement. If you think about Argentina, with equal marriage, with the gender identity law, with this law for a trans quota within the administration, we have managed to fight for the position as political subjects. The achievements in Argentina also serve as a model for resistance movements in other countries. Research by people like Manuela Peek shows how an alternative narrative to the binary has survived in many cultures around the world, whether in the Mushes in Mexico, the Tikuna in the Amazon, or the Maori in New Zealand. And often enough, these cultures are not where we would expect them to be. The Amazon is a very large area, and there's some regions where there are no roads and you only arrive by canoe or boat, or nowadays by plane. But Cavallo Cocha is a very isolated town that was created during the rubber boom in the early 1900s. The river has moved, there is no more rubber boom, so it's really an abundant little town on the Peruvian Amazon border with Brazil in the close to the Javari River Valley, which is one of the regions in the world with most people's involuntary isolation, right? Uncontacted tribes. And in Cavallo Cocha, they have a gay pride every year. They have like actually a queer context, right? And it's really one of the most vibrant and extravagant parades. And we have scenes there where priests are standing watching the soccer game on Sunday, children are eating their ice creams, and trans women are standing together by the priest, by the children in the ice cream, while the macho men are playing soccer and everybody's watching them. And they did uh, the gay pride through this very small Amazon town uh, on the song of Lady Gaga. Right? And I was thinking, here we are in the furthest away corners of the state, the furthest corner from the state of Brazil, the furthest corner from the state of Peru, the furthest corner away from the state of Colombia, the least reachable corners. And they're singing Lady Gaga. It's 2011. Right? Uh, they have a cell phone. They put some amplifier somewhere and they're traversing town, and before you know it's all of the cabs, which are motorbikes of the town, and the motorcycles and uh, bikes and pedestrians, everybody started following. And all ages and all genders were in the gay pride. And I remember thinking, how can that happen here, right? And there will be violence because all of these macho Christian evangelical men are going to come and be aggressive. Nothing happened. And I could have been in New York for that matter. It was probably much more peaceful than in New York. So what does it mean to be the center and to be the periphery? What is sexual modernity all about? And at the end of that gay pride, I was so fascinated. And I thought, I work with indigenous peoples. I'm married to an indigenous person. I live in Ecuador, I'm Brazilian, and still I'm shocked. And it's not about seeing a gay pride. I'm shocked about seeing a gay pride in this periphery because even I have the assumption of sexual modernity being at the core. Progressive gender does not bind people into a binary corset, 
but understands gender expression, sexual practice, and desire as potential. These many facets may also change over the course of a single life. For Alba, the key is to communicate the past and continue to fight. Above all, it is the generations that grow up without so much violence that give her hope. I am really touched and full of love for this new generation and have great hopes. Just the way they've become involved in the abortion debate, all these girls, young people, students, who have demonstrated with the green scarf for legalization, for the right to decide about one's own body, these young people are much further along than we are. They are much freer without these experiences of violence that we had to go through. Now, our task is to tell them about our memories, without drama and without nostalgia or a race forefinger, But the point is to make clear how valuable all that we have achieved is, and also how fragile, and that they need to protect it. But I have full confidence in this generation, that they will bring forward a diverse society, support the idea of diversity, and know about the rights of all. I already see many in the young generation who define themselves as non-binary, gender fluid, but we still need to give them the tools to find a good solution to end the history of our oppression. They are already on the right path. What do we need to do now? Accompany them, let them develop, encourage them. If we can do that, we will have a more just, diverse society in the future. Maybe it will take more than 20 years, but that's what it's all about. And that's what it's all about today. We have to improve our living conditions. In the second installment of the Our Voices, Our Choices series, we take a more concrete look at the perspective of transgenderness, and we look forward to you tuning in again. This was a podcast in the Our Voices, Our Choices series. You can find this and more of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in the app of your choice. Feel free to rate us and recommend us to others. And any feedback or suggestions are welcome too. You can reach us at podcast at bull.de. That's podcast at B-O-E-L-L dot D-E. This podcast is a production of the Audio Collective. Idea and editing by Kai Munch. My name is Kevin Kaners. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Our voices, our choices, the gender politics podcast of the Heinrich Böll Foundation.